Today's episode is sponsored by Stages Cycling, makers of industry-leading cycling computers, power meters, heart rate monitors, indoor studio bikes. And when I say industry-leading, I'm talking about last year's Tour de France winner, Tade Pogacar, used a Stages power meter and Stages cycling computer. I mean, that's legit. But why sponsor this podcast? I mean, they are a big company and we are not a sports show. One, because I know a lot of you are cyclists and this is gear that you're into. And two, I love their stuff. So one plus two equaled me calling them up and I said, hey, you want to sponsor the show? And they said, heck yeah, let's do it. Stimulus listeners, you get 20% off your order of all stages outdoor products. That is not a verbal typo. 20% off your order. To access that discount, use the link in the show notes. There's no discount code to type in. So the 20% is applied at checkout after you've used the link. The 20% does not apply to, got a little proviso here, the Stages SB20 Smart Bike. Now, that's like one of the favorite things that I own. I love my SB20. Even before Stages was a sponsor, it was the only indoor bike that I recommended to friends. It just feels as close as you can get to riding a road bike. It connects to Zwift. It's got shifters. I mean, it is the bomb. If you end up getting one of those and you use our link to buy it, we end up getting a couple of dollars, whatever. I'll just tell you, these things sell out quickly. If you're interested, get on the list. For everything else, 20% off. Good, giggly, wiggly. Let's get to the show. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the show. Some of you may know this, but I like to give books as gifts. Books I love. Books that are, maybe they're delightful, maybe meaningful, maybe educational. Sometimes you get the trifecta of all those things. And one book that hit that for me was also the one I gifted the most in 2020 called Mindfulness for a Happy Life. It's by Robert Beattie and Lisa Musikansky. And I've read a lot of books on mindfulness and meditation, and this is one of, if not the best that I've ever read. And Robert Beattie, the lead author of Mindfulness for a Happy Life, is our guest on today's episode. And I know that actually many of you are coming to Stimulus for the first time specifically to hear Robert. How fantastic. It's great to have you. So who is Robert Beatty? He is the founder and head teacher of the Portland Insight Meditation Community in Portland, Oregon. He has master's degrees in both environmental studies and social work as a psychotherapy practice that blends in Western ideas with Buddhist methods. And I know that many of you are meditators. And I know that some of you are meditation curious, let's say. Regardless, today's episode on how to meditate does not disappoint, regardless of where you are in your meditation practice, even if, especially if you've never done it. And this conversation builds as it goes on, and I think has a great payoff at the end. We go into a lot of detail on basic meditation techniques, but we also get deep into some advanced thinking. So really something here for everyone. Now, a few notes before we begin. Much of this conversation is woven in the tapestry of Buddhism, and there may be terms or ideas in here that you've never heard. Don't worry about that. 
Those will be in the show notes for you to pause, to read, go back later. And early in this discussion, Robert mentions his teacher, Ruth Dennison, who was one of the first teachers of insight meditation in the West. And frankly, her story is really quite incredible. We'll link to it in the show notes. And lastly, at about 10 minutes into the conversation, I asked Robert how to start a meditation practice. And he just lays it down, just gets right into it, an eight-minute guided meditation, smack dab in the middle of the podcast. If you feel you're not in a place for that, it's fine. You know, just skip over it, come back to it. And I have embedded just that guided meditation in the show notes if you want to come back to it or if you want to listen to it again, because actually it's a nice guided meditation to just do as a regular guided meditation. That's at stimuluspodcast.com. So here we go a guide on how to meditate, and so, so much more with Robert Beatty. Let's get into some of the, the basics yeah. of meditation. And I, I know many of our listeners have interest in this, and their experience with meditation really runs the gamut from people who have never tried it, some mm -hmm. people who have tried it, but then said it didn't work, and we can get into that, up mm -hmm. to listeners who have decades of dedicated practice. Mm. And, and of course, I mean, there's, you know, myriad permutations in between. But say someone is curious about starting meditation. They try it, whatever, whatever method that they, that is recommended mm -hmm. to them or they, they sought out. And they find that there's just like too much noise in their brain. They say, you know, they're not good at meditating, too much brain activity. Or, mm. you know, I was talking to someone yesterday said, you know, I can't be hypnotized and I can't hypnotize myself, which is what meditation is. And I thought it's interesting. Yeah. And um, they're at great risk of being hypnotized. Such a person. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that because I know he's listening right now. You know, I, I think that the experience, like to stick with the, you know, this is, it's just too busy. I can't concentrate. I can't focus. I think that that is a barrier for many. It's really important to know what your fantasy is about meditation. And a lot of what's available in the spiritual marketplace is a particular fantasy. It's similar to consumerist materialism in that it says, I, I'm going to learn a technique and I am going to learn how to control my mind and I'm going to get rid of these pesky thoughts. I'm also particularly going to, I'm going to get rid of these sad feelings or these angry feelings and I'm going to be in charge. And when I practice, most of the time, my mind will be blissful and great. And also, it'll carry over into my life, and I'll be a very happy person. I'll be very financially successfully and have the perfect lover and the perfect children. And, and I, will, I will live the dream. It's going to be quite challenging sometimes. And instead of trying to get rid of everything, get rid of all my bad thoughts and so on, my bad emotions, my aspiration is to be able to accept everything exactly as it is, which then brings us into the realm of love. Because love means there's room for everything. And so I can go into meditation and strive to stop those bad thoughts, or I can go into meditation and realize, oh, here's the breath. This can be my home base. And, oh, yes, there's all these thoughts, too. And, oh, look, I've just been lost in these thoughts for five minutes. How interesting. And something also happened at the end of those five minutes was, quote, I woke up. There was awareness. I became aware of thoughts as thoughts rather than me. And then I came back to my breath. And 
if the person's attitude is like that, it's a totally different game. And having a teacher is really helpful. I, I would say essential. Because if we read something out of a book, <laughs> even my book, <laughs> if we read something out of a book, we always interpret it through our own neurotic structures. And it's hard to see. I mean, I'm so grateful to Ruth Dennison. I, um, before I met Ruth and started going on retreats with her, I had learned how to meditate very hard. I could sit for a couple of hours, and I would sit like this, slump. And nothing much was happening because I'd learned how to go into a kind of dull trance. And on the first retreat I was on with Ruth, she came over to me a day or two in, and she shook my shoulder, my right shoulder, and said, you, you, you're always exhausted. Stay in bed tomorrow. <sighs> Stay in bed tomorrow? But uh, I was exhausted. And so I did. Everyone else got up and went to the meditation hall, and I, I lay in bed knowing that I was failing, and they were all going to get ahead of me, and... And uh, then I fell back asleep and slept till 11.30 or noon instead of 6 in the morning. And that afternoon, there was a different experience, oddly enough. But without Ruth, I could have gone on doing that same because I thought I was really the superior meditator because I could sit there for long periods of time and uh, so on. And that, that wasn't what. You know, there's a story Jack Cornfield tells of his teacher, Achan Shah. Some monk, and I think it was probably Jack, some monk approached Achan Shah and said, I just, you know, I just sat for six hours. And Achan Shah said, so I've seen chickens sit on eggs for days. What's the point? <laughs> you said something in there that I have actually quoted you as saying on this show many times. And I'd, I would love to hear, I'd love to have you elaborate on it because you said you sit down and accept that this moment is just as it is. Accept that things are just the way they are. Mm -hmm. It's juxtaposed with, with something else you said, which is this expectation, I think, that people have. I mean, this maybe it's a fantasy or an expectation, or it could, be, it could be real, of what's going to happen with meditation. And I think that most people come to it with at least, I don't know if it's a yearning or a desire or a thirst or a hope of a state change a change in how they think and just in how they are. It's like, right. oh, I've got this going on. And so there's this one thing like, okay, I want to, I want to get to this other place, but there's also, as you settle, I accept that this moment is just as it is. How do those two things mm. meld? You're a really good interviewer. That's well, a good question. Well, thanks for, thanks for that. That's a great question. Well, there's a paradox which means there are two truths which are connected down on the subs in the substrata, but they're, con they're contradictory. And one is skillful effort. The effort to restrain unwholesome mental states, once they're gone, to keep them gone. The effort to bring into being wholesome mental states like mindfulness, concentration, equanimity. And once they're up, to keep them up. So there's a sense of agency and small e effort. And that's with the intention of cultivating a consciousness, cultivating a mind in which the wholesome mental states tend to arise more frequently than the unwholesome states. 
for instance, the five hindrances, sense, lust, desire, aversion, disliking, restlessness, agitation, worry, sloth and torpor, dullness, and doubt, skeptical doubt. So those are powerful forces in the human mind. And then there's these opposing forces, which are the seven enlightenment factors. <laughs> you, know, you know why it's boring to talk to Buddhists? They love lists, man. They always talk with a list. They always love lists. <laughs> they do. Well, <laughs> but it's useful because the seven enlightenment factors, mindfulness, curiosity, persistence, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, these mental factors can be cultivated and the, the ones that cause suffering can be diminished and over time we actually become more of the enlightened enlightenment factors. So, doesn't that mean that you should really strive? Well, yes, but in my, I did biofeedback for a generation, a, a, what's it called, a decade or two. Uh, and there's a term that they use in biofeedback called, strangely, effortless effort. And there's a way that underlying this effort is simply the reality of just being, of just allowing things to be as they are. And here's the paradox, because how do you do that? Well, you do it in your meditation, and it's an art. And you figure out somehow how much effort to make. And you figure it out by trying too hard and by trying too little. There's the, uh, the, the utterly paradoxical statement that you're already awake, that all you're doing is relaxing into your wakefulness. And that's true, too. And there's whole traditions based on which side of the polarity they, the, uh, the, the, the lineage grabs onto. But it's something that this balance is something one learns through practice. So for someone who has never meditated, and they might be listening thinking like, what, what is going on here? Right. <laughs> what, what is he talking what about? Is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, so someone has never meditated, or you know, maybe yeah. they've, they've tried it. It's like, ah, this, is, this doesn't work for me. What do you think is a reasonable way to start that it gives an understanding to the process and also realistic expectations? Could we take three or four or five minutes and I'll do a little guided meditation? Sure. Now, guys, if you're driving, pull over or off, to, or off to the side of the road or pause it. Pause it till you get somewhere safe. Yeah. Or if you're driving, really become aware of seeing. Seeing and notice how your eyes can dart to the other lane. and They can go up to the mirror, the inside mirror, the right mirror, the left mirror, and keep your eyes on the road. Keep, keep seeing. My teacher in Burma taught me to do a practice which goes like this. Seeing, hearing, sitting, touching. And in the car, it would be left foot, right foot, buttocks in the chair, left hand on the wheel, right hand on the wheel, tongue in the mouth, seeing, emphasizing seeing. But otherwise, good to pull over or turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> so sitting comfortably upright, the Buddha sat cross-legged because he was from a small village in India, not because sitting cross-legged is required. What's required is a willingness to stop for a few minutes. So sitting comfortably upright, let your hands be relaxed in your lap. Let your eyes be open and downcast or closed. 
Notice your buttocks where they touch the chair. There's a body sitting here, and it's, it's alive. There's also mysteriously awareness, and this awareness can take the body as its object of observation. And notice, since the moment of your birth, when your mother could no longer breathe for you, and until the moment when you take your last breath and then exhale. There's this strange thing called breathing. And it's a connection point between you and all of the green beings on the earth. They produce oxygen, you produce carbon dioxide. They build their branches and twigs and leaves out of that carbon dioxide. So paying attention to this connection point, this home base, notice that each breath has a beginning. It has a breathing in. There is a breathing in. And you can feel it in the chest and abdomen. It has a breathing out. So a breath begins and then the chest and abdomen expand. And of course, what you'll discover is the mind wanders. You have a home base, you have an intended home base with the rising and falling of the chest and abdomen. But the mind won't stay there long for most people. It goes off into fantasies and past and future, liking, disliking. And this is where it gets particularly artful and beautiful, which is we make an intention or a vow in a way to say, I intend to stay when I can with the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. When something else happens, I intend to notice that. So you may discover that you're lost in a wandering mind that's gone on for a minute or minutes. How is it that you noticed it? What happened that lit it up so that you knew, oh yeah, a wandering mind, coming home to the sensations of breathing?
And so this is meditation. We have an orientation. It's like a compass heading or a GPS direction. I intend to stay home with my breathing whenever I can. And maybe you count the breaths. Breathing in one, breathing out two, up to ten. Or maybe you make little mental notes, in, in, out, out. And then the mind wanders off. It might go off into tumult. It might go off into emotion. It might go off into all kinds of past and future thinking or fear or anger. It doesn't matter what it does. Because in a little while, mindfulness notices, oh, wandering mind. And it comes back to the breath. And now we've spent a few minutes doing this exercise. Please become aware of your buttocks where they press into the chair. Please notice the life in your hands. They're remarkably alive. Notice the life in your face. And now paying attention to the eyes, notice the intention to open them. It's a plan in the mind, the next thing that's going to happen. And then let that plan operationalize itself. Let it happen. It takes effort. And then there's opening, opening. And then watch something miraculous happen, which is seeing starts. Seeing. I've been doing this for 50 years, and rather than becoming jaded or bored with it, whenever I open my eyes, it's kind of mind-boggling. There wasn't seeing at all, and now there is. And then you close your eyes, boom, it's gone again. And then from here, a meditator would be maybe stretch mindfully. We could do that. Take a moment to just let your hands come up over your shoulders. And my aging body is always stiff. And where you feel the pull in the body, bring your attention into that and then stretch further into that. And then if we could extrapolate from here, we would get up and go do something else. And maybe we're making lunch and you're buttering a slice of bread or cutting a carrot or driving your car. Every situation is the situation, perfect situation for meditation because it doesn't, doesn't detract from activity. It, it simply adds knowing what's happening. I'm sure you're going to ask me, well, how long should a person meditate? And I recommend pick a length of time that you'll actually do. Two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, and do it every day. And, and it's one place I'm a, I'm a little of a stickler on this. I would suggest that if you want to develop a meditation practice, decide how long you're going to do it. And don't make it too long. And then do it every day for a month with no excuses. I don't want to do it today. Tough. And then you get yourself on your meditation cushion. Or actually, do it even for, for one minute every day. But no matter what. Including the day you wake up with a hangover. Uh, the day you're late for work, the day you, one minute, you can afford a minute. It's like, 
Uh, I don't check the oil in my car often enough. It's a new enough car that it doesn't blow up on me, but but one should check the oil with some frequency. And why not check the psycho-spiritual oil before you leave the house? What am I like this morning? What's the mind like? So you, the dipstick is sitting in mindfulness for for a minute or two, and you discover, wow, I'm insane this morning. Or, oh, lots of calmness this morning, or whatever it is. So it's, it's kind of like most of us wouldn't leave the house without brushing our teeth. Uh, I'm, I'm a great believer in not leaving the house till we brush our psyches. Because <laughs> <laughs> some of the stuff that comes out of sleep really doesn't belong in the world. It belongs to be taken care of. As we went through that and sat down and became aware of the weather pattern in our mind and then then focused on these various, say, meditation objects. So we had yep. our... We had our buttocks, we had our breath, we had, we had all these things. And then your mind would wander, and then you come back. Your mind wander, you'd be awake to that, and then you come back. What is it in mindfulness that you're actually being mindful of? Is it that object? Is it that you're aware of being aware? Is it the coming back part? I mean, what, what is the mindfulness within that process? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> drop, I, drop the mic, man. Drop the mic and just walk away. That's my ending. All right. <laughs> All right. Obama out. <laughs> um, so one learns how to be mindful of the body as it sits, as it walks, as it dresses, as it goes to the toilet, as it eats, uh, as it drives, as it sits at the computer. We pay attention to the body. We're mindful of the body. And then we're mindful of the body's interaction with the world through the sense doors, eye, ear, nose, tongue, feeling body, and mind. Every sense contact has a valence, has a feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or not, or indeterminate. And these push us through life. And so uh, we also become mindful of feelings. And then there's all these mental formations, these sankharas, uh, which are uh, the memories from childhood. The, the you know you see somebody walking down the street and you have an opinion, or your political conditioning has these. There are belief structures, and those become objects of observation. The wandering mind, and then for the fourth character, fourth category, uh, is is called mental phenomena. And that includes observing things like the five hindrances, the seven enlightenment factors, but also seeing. It's quite a thing to, to, to sit in meditation and listen to music and be aware of hearing. And then you lose yourself in the music and then you become aware of hearing again. Similarly, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the feeling body, being mindful of the body as it feels things. There's a an aspect of our lives, at least at certain stages of our lives, around sexuality. And to be mindfully engaged in connecting sexually is to make love. Because then one is present with oneself and present with the other, while the passionate desires may well emerge and how wonderful that is, there's also the knowing of that. So there's nothing that's outside the realm of mindfulness. And yes, you're right. One can be mindful of being mindful. What about right now? 
Here we are, you and I looking at each other sort of through this strange contraption. It's good though, I like it. But if we were to look at each other and become aware of seeing. So there's the seeing, but there's also knowing of seeing. That's mindfulness. It's that simple. Uh, I drive I, where I live in Beaverton. <clears throat> when I go to the center, I drive along. It's about three and a half miles of straight stretch on Multnomah Boulevard. And uh, I like to drive it. It's a spiritual tradition called the headless way. And I like to drive it headless, meaning as I'm driving, I like to become aware. What's at this end? What's, what's here? At, pointing at my face. Well, what's here is a field of awareness. And all this stuff, these trees and cars and road and sky, they're all flowing into me and disappearing. And it's so, and then a thought will arise and that goes into the same space. So there's so many ways to play with this and be more and more attentive to what's happening in the present moment, as opposed to being lost in worry, listening to the news or, or losing oneself in music. I'm not opposed to listening to music. And I'm, I also listen to the news, but I try to titrate my dose because I can get overwhelmed quite easily. I can fall into the trance and then get oppositional and fearful. And So with all of those examples of things that you can attend to, you know, what am, what am I going to attend to at this moment? It's, you know, yeah. my, my seeing the experience of being headless. So rather than I am in the drive, well, the, the, the drive is in me. So all, so all of these yeah. different things. But in our guided meditation, the core of that was the breath. Yep. It's, it seems universal across meditation traditions. Why the breath? Why, why is that? Mm. I mean, of course, it's not the only thing, as you were explaining, but it seems to be the main thing. The body is the slowest changing aspect of a human being. You could, we could say, oh, let's pay attention to thoughts. And people do. There are mantra practices. The Tibetans, oh, mani padmiyam, oh, mani padmiyam, oh, mani padmiyam, or... Uh, a little aside here, I had an incredible trip, 17 days, 19 days in Turkey with my daughter some years ago. And uh, when I got there, I started go answering the call to prayer. I went to the mosque and, and uh, they were so kind. They taught me how to do the proper washing and so on. And um, it's a trip. It is a trip to stand with three to 500 men on prayer blankets facing in one. And I don't know what they were doing, but I know what I, what I was doing. And, and uh, to bow when they bow, man, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And I bought an old man's mala. There's, there's a particular mala, the old, uh, beads, that the old men carry. And I carried that. And while I was there, when I was doing my tourist thing, I would, I would be intentionally intoning the traditional great um, mantra of Allahu Akbar. There's nothing that's not God. God is one. And so there I'd be going down the street I'd be, and I'd be walking and touristing, but I'd simultaneously be doing Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And I had such a trip because the, the old men, like me, the old men would see me, tourist, with my daughter, and then they'd look at my mala and they just grin from ear to ear because they had theirs too. And they were doing a word, rather than the breath, they were using the mantra as their meditation, and the hand as their, as their primary object. Now, there's a, it's a great question. There's a term called upaya, which means 
skillful means. And when I'm on an orbital machine at the gym, I could be following my breath, or I could be following my hand. Or when I'm bicycling, I went back before I had a brain surgery a year ago, and but bef before that, I, uh, I bicycled to my office. It was 12 and a half miles each way. I got a beautiful e-bike and down a big hill and up. And, and sometimes I would, sometimes I'd just attend. Uh, <laughs> I just remembered something. I just, just the, the air rushing in my face. I go down. <laughs> there's a big cemetery on Taylor's Ferry Hill. And there's a great bike ride down through there. <laughs> One day I was going down, <laughs> going quite fast and uh, singing to the dead. Hello, dead, I'll be with you soon. And really just singing at the top of my lungs. I came around a corner and there were 50 or 100 people. <laughs> I felt so, I was kind of embarrassed, but I just <laughs> shot by them quickly. Uh, <laughs> but so upaya means you choose something appropriate for that moment. Like when you're driving, seeing, that's the appropriate thing to be observing. And chopping carrots, you want to be aware of your fingers and chopping carrots. Uh, changing the baby's diaper, you want to be aware of handling the baby well. The weight room in meditation is sitting meditation. And you're developing concentration, which is the mind's ability to focus on an object and stay there. And you're developing mindfulness, which is the mind's ability to be awake and aware. And there's no more efficient way to do that than. Here's the breath. Come home, come home, come home. Here's the wandering mind. Notice, 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 notice. And you develop these mental capacities. They're like muscles. And so meditation, uh, mindfulness of breathing, is a very efficient way to develop the mental factors necessary for then being mindful while you're in conflict with your spouse. That was a lot. Hope that was on target. <laughs> Oh, it, it doesn't matter because the target is moving. So, so okay, good. Okay, so so someone they say someone is starting a meditation, and I'm going to focus on my breath, and I know that my brain, my thoughts, my thoughts are this wild, crazy monkey, and it's just hopping around, and you know the monkey mind, and it's really frustrating, and it's just okay. I try to focus on my breath, and even before that breath is done, it's just. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, plan pl I'm, I'm planning, I'm thinking, I'm this, I'm that, and this. And it's okay, I'll come back to the breath and, and just this pinball. And if, say they wanted to, they're like, oh, I'll count my breaths. They can't count to two. How do you counsel them mm. for continuing their practice? Mm -hmm. Join me in the morning at seven o'clock. And every morning I do, uh, there's just a, a little introduction. And then I do a 30-minute guided meditation like we did, but longer. And I always do it a little differently. And if you can't come at 7 o'clock, it's on Facebook, and it's also on YouTube. If a person went to robertbeattie.com, there are some guided meditations there that just listen to them, and it provides some support. What do you think about meditation apps? If they help a person actually practice, how wonderful. Let's get into that a little bit, because one of the aspects of the apps is kind of the gamification of meditation right. where you oh that's us okay well yeah right. but but so yeah i mean like you accumulate points you get rewards and you know you got, got your friends and your, your thumbs up and all this and you know we were talking before about not striving you know yeah. not that there's a, that aspect to it and that it seems like the goal orientation aspect of it or the gamification aspect of it while it could get you in the cushion or get you in the seat or get you meditating may in the long run 
be a hindrance? Well, in the long run, the app would fall away. At the beginning, one times one's meditation. As the vistas of meditation open up, uh, the way I use my timer is, <laughs> how long can I have? And, you know, I have responsibilities, and you can have an hour and a half here. You're allowed to have that. And then, so then the alarm is just so that I don't overshoot. But at first, you know, you set alarms, and you, I'm, I'm going to do this for five minutes, and you set an alarm, and it's, it, it's a goalpost to reach. And then it's, it's uh, I, have, I have one student who's gradually, she's at, I think, 47 minutes now. She's been meditating for about a year and a half, and she, she extends a minute every so many days or weeks or whatever it is. And her goal, as I recommended, is uh, shoot for an hour. And she's retired, has lots of time. And her life is transforming. And funny, she didn't really notice, and I, I can say this because it's confidential. You know, she, nobody knows who she is. She has she suffered a lot from OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's profoundly reduced. And she didn't really notice, and and she was complaining that nothing was happening. And I said to her one day, "What about the OCD?" And she said, "Oh, oh yeah," <laughs> but she still is looking for something dramatic. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty damn dramatic, but it didn't happen suddenly. That's a big transformation. And yeah. there's like this, I guess it's like a, I don't know if it's a paradox, but mindfulness in this practice, this cyclical activity of being aware of your thoughts, being aware that you're aware, not lingering, coming back to your object, aware of thought, come back, repeat. And you say in your book, and it's, this really you know speaks to what you're, you're referring to with your student is... The practice of mindfulness allows you to really embrace the truth of your life. Mm. And my question with that is, you know, we've been really focusing on this micro aspect of the kind of, of the how to is how can trying to not focus on your thoughts, mm. in fact, intentionally letting go of them and concentrating yeah. on your breath, how can that lead to deep insight? It seems like you're trying to, to not think. <laughs> Another very lovely question. If, if you imagine a, uh, a Wild West tombstone, like the kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's just a little stone that goes up and then over. And, and on the tombstone, it says Robert Beatty, and then here's these dates. And then on one side, it says rising and falling. And then at the top, it says, or the most predominant object. And so there's this cryptic thing on my, on my tombstone. It's like, what is this about? Well, Let's say you take up mindfulness of breathing and you do it with some frequency and gentleness and you get some good guidance. And, and so you begin to notice more and more that thoughts are thoughts and it's possible to wake up from them and to become attentive to the actual sensations of breathing in and breathing out. Right? So you're, you're practicing what the Buddha called bare attention on the sensations of the chest and abdomen, breathing in and breathing out, or you can also use the nostrils, the breath coming and going at the nostrils. So these are real phenomena that are happening in the present moment, and you can become increasingly, over time, more adept at waking up to the thoughts and then coming to the breath. And so instead of being continuously lost in the wandering mind, one starts waking up from the wandering mind. And then... There are wandering minds which are 
emotional uprisings or tremendous desires or restlessness and agitation or sleepy dullness or there's these things that happen in mind. And when one can know the difference between this is the body and this is the mind, sometimes you get what we would call a secondary object. Let's say Let's say something's happened in your life, you've been betrayed by someone, and you're really flipping out. Maybe somebody says something to you, and you find you're ruminating about it and angry about it and so on. The first part of the meditation is, that's thinking, the content is of no relevance at all, back to the breath. But it persists. Then, or the most predominant object, the thought, emotion, all that complex, as Jung and Freud would have called it, you put aside the breath and you take the thinking and the emotions as your meditation object. Where is it that I feel these feelings in my body? What are these thoughts if I really pay attention to them? These thoughts are very similar. In fact, they are very deeply connected with this feeling I have in my gut that I've had my whole life since that time that my mother died or my father beat me or whatever. And so then these, these psycho-emotional complexes become the object of observation. And we're not lost in it. It's still happening. But there's a quality of observation and presence. So... Moving to the breath and developing concentration on the breath is one piece of the practice. Now, there's a very important distinction here. This practice is translated, it's called Satipatthana Vipassana. It translates as insight meditation. Why? Well, what I just talked about was a process of psychological and emotional insight, right? Uh, this happened as a child. These are the feelings. This is the way the thinking is happening right now. And this is the way I'm behaving right now. And this is unwinding the personality, hyphenated personality. There's another, another kind of insight, which goes like this. So here I am sitting in meditation. And the mind gets quiet. And the breath is coming and going. And something becomes irrefutably clear, undeniably clear. And the category this falls into in the Buddhist teachings is the three characteristics of existence. We start noticing that the breath really, really has a beginning. And by the time I get to the middle of the breath, the beginning is long gone. And then it gets to the end of the breath, and the middle of the breath is then long gone. And the truth of impermanence starts blazing. The same with every, we start noticing thoughts are coming and going and visual objects are coming and going. And the truth, the truth of the matter is there is nothing stable. It's all in flux. When these insights start coming, they are really life transformative. They're not psychological and emotional. They're, they're of a different order. They're spiritual insights. The second characteristic of existence, the Buddha called dukkha, which can be suffering, but it also simply means struggle or that which is difficult to bear. And that's our lives. And then there's a third characteristic of existence, which is, which is a place most Westerners get really stuck and then we try to figure out with the mind, which says the self is a process. There is no entity self. There is, there's no Robert here. There's a process, and it came into being, and it's alive for a few, a few breaths, and then it'll go out of being. And that, too, starts becoming really obvious. 
I had the privilege recently, I had a, a five days, six, five, six nights actually, in a little cabin at the beach. One of my students lets me use her cabin. And mostly I just sat and walked and went for walks on the beach. And uh, so uh, I'd go to bed when I felt tired and I get up in the morning. I, one morning I got up around 3.30 or 4. And I was sitting on the couch, nice comfy spot. And the mind got real quiet. And nothing was happening but contentment, ease. And then it was so clear that out of nowhere, unbidden, there came th thoughts. Oh, when I get home, I have to remember to do this. I have to remember to do this. And it was irrefutable. There was no one thinking those thoughts. They just thought themselves. And it was also irrefutable that whenever one of those emerged, it was dukkha. Compared to the experience of just spaciousness, each one of those had a little tension in it. Not horrible at all, but clearly dukkha. And it also was totally apparent, not as a fantasy and a, or philosophical observation, but nobody was thinking them. They were just there. Those are the deepening, liberating insights of the Dharma that the psychological and emotional stuff, we can keep unpacking that for a lifetime. In fact, I have a, a friend who's 95, and, he, and he's, doing, he's doing some really potent work on early child, very early childhood trauma. And he's a very wise, awakened fellow too. But he, the, So there's this, the personality can be unwound forever probably. But these insights, which are the core of insight meditation, they are what lead to more and more awakeness, more and more awakening. When you have a moment of insight, you're meditating, and it's like, oh, wow, this, this great realization. Do you sit with that, or is it come back to the breath? Come back to the breath. Well, it could be come back to the breath, but there at the beach, I wasn't using my breath as a home base. I was simply ab abiding in awareness. The breath is a strategy. It's a technique that we use in order to become capable of observing all the phenomena that occur. And then eventually formal meditation is, I don't go to meditate. I go to hang out on the couch. I go to my, my little meditation spot in order to be there, and I'm not trying to achieve anything. And blessedly in this time, it's not always true, but mostly it just goes pretty quiet. Thank goodness, 50 years, jeez. <laughs> you think, as I sometimes say, you'd, you'd think, it's a little linguistically off, but you'd think I'd be further along than this. <laughs> but, but, to experience any true transformation in life is a miracle. To not be bothered by things that used to be really problematic. Actually, I have another piece of my practice now that I can share with you that, that I, I'm very interested in. I've had lots of encounters with people in my life where I, quote, didn't like them. Where they, I had an opinion about them, or they did, my experience was they did something bad, or, and when I think of, when the mind thinks of them, it kind of goes, ah, uh, them, yuck. <laughs> and more and more awareness is noticing that. And there were some bullies in my childhood that, that were, it was bad. Mm -hmm. And 
<laughs> I heard years and years ago, I heard that the guy who was really a bully, these, you know, they, they picked on me on the way home from school and they'd push me around and knock me down and spit in my face. And it was ugly. But when I think of him now, and I don't much anymore ever, but it's not so much with ug, or if it is with ug, there's a noticing and saying, why would I encourage that thought? This guy may well be dead. And how does it help me to be holding this tight place in myself about this person that with whom I had this encounter that I think really happened, but it's it's another lifetime. So there's a kind of purification process that happens over time too, just letting go of that stuff. Blech. How do you apply that to people who may bring up that reaction who are still active in your life? It's a challenge, isn't it? A way to, to think of that is, I take it to my meditation spot and I get some grounding, you know, come to my breath and get quiet a little bit and then turn toward that person and then reflect upon them with, with compassion. There's a very an incredibly powerful practice, which is remember that people that are going to, that people are going to die, that we're all here for a few eye blinks. And I have a funny story I can tell you. A teaching used to teach, maybe hopefully again in Canada three times a year. And uh, my, my baggage got, lost. And I had to wait in Portland for two or three hours to get my bags or two hours. I was with the, the woman who was working the baggage area. And we had a, we had a nice time. And she, she, she said, I've never, I've never met anyone who isn't upset about this. And uh, I said, well, you know, I just did a 12-day meditation course and, and it's just baggage. And then it occurred to me, well, I, I, I said, <laughs> you know, I do have a secret practice that I do. I, I could tell you, but it's very weird. And she said, oh, okay. And I said, well, okay. And I kind of sidled up close to her before COVID and said, you know, everyone here is going to die. And she looked and she said, wow, that does change things, doesn't it? And I told this one time, and there's a fellow at PIMC who's, who's from India, and he's very dark-skinned. And he's faced a bunch of racist crap. And he said in the group, well, you wouldn't want to say that if you didn't have white skin because they would have arrested you. <laughs> <laughs> they would, would have thought it was a threat, you know. But anyway, that's, it, it's very – to think of that, to think this person that I'm, I'm – um, well, Donald Trump. What a tragic human being. But to hate him – why would I hate him? He's a, he's a victim of his upbringing and he's, he's living out his own karma, but it doesn't serve anyone for me to hate him. I actually have a picture of him as a little boy that I use uh, to, to reflect on. He's such a tortured little kid. I mean, catastrophically. I want to get back to something that we were, we were, starting, to, we were starting to dive into, which was a, a particular moment in meditation personally have found that there are ways to do it that are negative that have a maybe even like like little bits of self-criticism or trauma and that is the moment when you come back from whatever thought has arisen coming back to your uh. meditation object what is a skillful way to do that i mean i can tell you the unskillful way is like oh god again really <laughs> okay right what is what a stupid person you I, yeah <laughs> Why don't you get over it? <laughs> right. Can't you get this thing right, man? Right. So, 
one of the secondary objects of meditation that many of us have to deal with, most Westerners, is self-hatred. And self-hatred is nothing more than another wandering mind. It's just malware. It's, it, we learned it from our parents, and we, it's kind of built in for us. And uh, so we, the mind is conditioned to speak Ill, Ill to us. And I've seen lots and lots of people, myself included, who have really significantly triumphed over self-hatred simply by becoming more and more and more aware of it and then realizing, oh, these are just thoughts. These are not me. They're not mine. And they just, they, they, they then over time, they attenuate. They become less and less. There's nothing to do with them. When they happen and we see them, we don't have to then respond to them by hating them. We just notice them as they are. And then they, you know what they do? They pass away. They come into being and they disappear. And if we don't react to them either by glomming onto them or fighting them, they over time they just get weaker and weaker and weaker. <laughs> I just remembered when my son was little, I was putting in a hardwood floor and he, ins he insisted on helping me. He must have been two or three. And at a certain point, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I said with exasperation, you are such a pain in the ass. <laughs> and he lit up and said, pit in the axe, pit in the axe. <laughs> and all my wife and I could do was to just not respond. And then he lost, it, it went away in a few days. But one, one energetic, and we do that with, with self-hatred. We, we fight it and we, we amplify it. And what we need to do is just let it die. Is there something that you say or to come back or returning? Yeah. If you're using noting, one of the great teachers in Burma created a system of noting in which one would note rising, rising, falling, falling, rising, rising, wandering, wandering, returning, returning. Or if you're a worrier, worrying, worrying, returning, returning, worrying, worrying, returning, returning. Or if you're a, a type who goes to criticism and, and aversion and disliking, 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 come back to the breath, disliking, disliking. I think my favorite part of your book is the metaphor of the two arrows. Ah, yes. And, and personally, I think about that a lot when I'm going through something difficult found it incredibly helpful. And I'd, I'd love you to walk us through the idea of the two arrows sure. and then, you know, how that metaphor can be applied in daily life. So the first arrow, thunk, I have, I have two sets of arrows I use when I'm giving talks. So imagine the first arrow, thunk, I have it now in my left side under my armpit. And I would say, so do you think this hurts and do you think I'm suffering? <laughs> And I say, this is not a trick question. I've just been <laughs> shot with an arrow. And, uh, and well, yes. And yes, I am. And then, thunk, in comes another arrow. What about this? You think there's even more? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So he says this. At some point in your life, the suffering may get bad enough, and you may have tried enough escapes, like enough ski vacations, enough children, enough career, enough money, enough. And you discover, you know, none of those outer things are actually solving the problem. 
And then someone says, well, why don't you sit down and start paying attention to breathing and notice how much struggle there is, how much unpleasantness. And instead of turning away from it, turn toward it and bear it like a wagon bears a load. Learn to suffer, like when you're sick, turn toward the symptoms and just be sick. Pay attention. Use all the concentration power you've developed in meditation, all the compassion, and just feel what a, a common cold is really painful if you pay attention to it. And then notice, are you suffering? Well, yes. So pay attention to the suffering. Pay attention to the next step, which is there's a resistance to it. I don't like this. I shouldn't be sick. I, I, she shouldn't have left me. He shouldn't have left me. This is wrong. There's all this story that happens. And it's, it's pushing against the original experience. And then you do that and you, you develop some mastery with that. And then so you're, you're suffering and you're observing this, resist, this unenforceable rule that you have. And then something happens. Out of nowhere, suddenly, maybe, the pain is the same, but the suffering is gone. That's nirvana. And a very common first experience of that when people come on retreat is a person sitting, I'll tell you mine was for me. I was sitting in, in, in India. They required us to sit cross-legged, and I don't sit, I never sat cross-legged well. And my right knee became just this ball of fire. I would not recommend someone to do this, but that's what they were doing there. So I sat there in the middle of it, and it got worse and worse and worse, and I was suffering, and I was hating the guy that was teaching the retreat and, and suffering and suffering. And then I heard this model, and then all of a sudden, the suffering disappeared. The pain was exactly the same, but the suffering went away. And I thought, whoa. And then, boom, it was back. But that was quite convincing. How could that be? So you've got this first arrow, which is the arrows of life, the birth, sickness, old age, decay, death. And these are all going to happen. However, this second arrow, which is all the resistance to it, that can come out. And so we take out the second arrow, and we do that through meditation. We do that through learning to bear the suffering very consciously, fully, patiently, and stopping fighting it. Now, we do change the things we can. You know, there's that lovely old Irish prayer that AA made such good use of. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So, of course, we do what we can to improve our lives and to, to be safe and take care of our kids and so on. But after we've done everything we can, there's still tons. There's tons of things that we can't change. So what do we do then? Well, we can fight and scream and drink more or buy more or act out more, or get, get angry, again, become an angry mob because we think, we think that's going to make me feel better. And, or we can stop and realize, ah, why am I suffering? It's because I'm demanding something to be different that isn't and can't be. And then there's relief. That's nirvana, the quenching of the suffering. The first arrow. You got no choice. You took birth. That's that's that's, that's, that's the human condition. It's a human condition. The second arrow, the story, that's where you have a choice. The resistance. It's wanting more pleasure, wanting less pain, or wanting to get the hell out of this circumstance because that circumstance will be better. So I've got a couple questions on this. So the more you 
turn towards that first arrow, however unpleasant it may be, the smaller the second arrow gets, or the less deep the second arrow gets. Yeah. It brings up the question of coping mechanisms, which are not necessarily turning towards that first arrow that's sticking in you. And I'm so curious about your thoughts on this as you know, the combination of a therapist and a meditation teacher all in one and how you guide people through tough times, specifically looking at coping mechanisms. You know, you've got personal loss, grief, something that's painful. And you know, many of our listeners right now are, you know, I mean, we're we're in a COVID surge. It's there's just so much. And sometimes more work is an outlet. Sometimes mm-hmm. a, a beer or two is an outlet or whatever. And in your book, you say some of our coping mechanisms are not inherently bad activities, but when you're overworking, intoxicated, binge watching a show, spending hours on your latest favorite app, you're typically in a trance. You're simply not present to your own life and you're unaware of what's happening inside you or outside. God, that's well written. Isn't that beautiful, man? <laughs> beautiful prose. Get that, guy, get that guy a Pulitzer. Yeah. Stat. All right. So I'm I'm curious, how can you identify mm-hmm. when you're on one side mm. or the other? And, and and there's so much to this. I mean, a, a coping mechanism takes the pressure head away, but it mm. also can take you away from from living. I mean, when somebody is like reliving a, a childhood trauma, and okay, lean into that first arrow. It's like okay, where does a healthy coping mechanism come in versus? You know what? Lean in, lean into it, feel it, know it, look at it, be it. Distraction works for small pains and for a short time. And having a couple of drinks every night for a decade or two or three doesn't lead to waking up. Resorting to shopping every time doesn't lead to waking up. At some point, we discover that that doesn't work. And then... Let's use the childhood trauma uh, example you brought up. When might it make sense to turn toward it? Well, you have to know you want to first. You have to know that it's possible. And then you need to get the right help. You need to get help externally, other a person or persons. You need to have, in my view, a meditation practice. And then you develop the capacity to bear with small things at first. And then over time, it becomes possible to to face the bigger the bigger pains and i think we continue to do that all the way to full awakening that we we face into the profound suffering of a human life life is extremely beautiful and connection is incredible and there's so much to appreciate about it and it's also excruciatingly painful way more than we let on and as I get older, and I've, I've worked in the realm of death and dying for decades, but as I have my friends get sick and die, and I've been divorced a couple of times, and the ultimate losses in life are, are gargantuan. Everything. Everything goes away. There's a, there's a very beautiful practice in, in the Theravadan Buddhist world. It's, it's called the... The daily contemplations. I am of the nature to age. I've not gone beyond aging. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. 
I am of the nature to sicken, to fall sick. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I am of the nature to die. Is that true? Yeah, I sort of believe it. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become separated from me. Everything I know and love. My, my wife's mom is into severe dementia now. Her personality disappeared. She's gone. Her person disappeared. For those who were very attached to her, it's been agony. Now, this is not beginner practice. This could scare people off. But I've waited in enough ERs, or, you know, the, the waiting room outside the ICU. And, and I've, had, I've had, you know, my parents died and I've had a bunch of deaths. Um, last year with the brain surgery and everything, I, I, I've had, I, I, you know, I've had a fair amount of my own suffering. The fantasies that we can go to Costco or go to Europe or go somewhere and uh, that we're going to make it all better that way, they're not true. One could say, well, God, this is a morbid way of looking at things. Well, I'm looking out the door at my little white dog who's 15, 16. He's old. And it's going to be hard when he goes. I spend a little time with him every day. I pat him till he passes out. He just loves it. He loves it. And I'm, I'm aware. I'm really taking advantage of it. And the same with, same with every relationship, that, that we, we only have a, a, have a few meetings with people in our lifetime. And so having this in mind, is, it doesn't result in being morbid. It results in, in tasting things more and, and being more present and being more compassionate and being able to be with people when they're really hurting. If we haven't felt to the depths of our own suffering, I ain't, I, we have to get away from people who are really suffering, which mo many people experience that that they, f they get really sick or they're really hurting and people don't want to be around them because they can't tolerate it because it provokes in the, the healthy person, this thing isn't stable. So I, I guess this maybe I should mention this, that people come to meditation for lots of different reasons. One is stress management, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction works great, really helps all kinds of syndromes and, and it's great. And then there's mindfulness for um, a psychological, emotional well-being for depression and anxiety. Wonderful. It's, it's incredible. It's very helpful. And then there's, <laughs> meditation so you can chant and get things. That's <laughs> not terribly helpful, but that happens. But then there's the mindfulness of true spiritual practice, which is asking the question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I and what's going on? <laughs> the profound question at the, at the core of spiritual practice is that, who am I? Really? So for our listeners out there, as we close up, how would you like to sign off and maybe a call to action or a practice or a little gem for them to take away. So there once was a Sufi poet named Kabir who said this. The small ruby that everyone wants the small ruby that everyone wants has fallen out in the road. Some people say it lies to the east of us. 
Others say to the west of us. Some say in primitive earth rocks, and others say in deep waters. Kabir's instinct told him that it was inside and what it was worth. So he wrapped it carefully in his heart cloth. So I would say, I guess this, if, if you've listened through this whole interview, you must be somewhat interested. And <laughs> try to stop. Try to stop. Stop the headlong rush to trying to, trying to be satisfied through consumption. It doesn't do it. And start a meditation. Start small. Start for five minutes a day. And then when you go running, notice that you're running. Or when you pick up your phone, sometimes don't pick up the phone. And there's two statements that I often share. I do it internally, but also when I teach, when I do guided meditations, they go like this. They're attitudinal statements. So here I am being attentive to my breath and wandering mind and so on. And the attitudinal statement is this. I aspire to love and accept myself exactly as I am in this moment. Love means there's room for everything. I aspire to accept myself exactly as I am in this moment. And when I'm hurting, no matter how I'm hurting, sickness, injury, broken heart, depression, anxiety, fear, loneliness, I aspire to hold myself in sweet compassion, which is, you know, what do we do if a small child falls and scrapes themselves up pretty badly? First thing we do, we check, are they injured? And then maybe we just hold them and say, wow, I can see you're really hurting. Yep, I'm just going to hold you while you kind of get yourself back together, and uh, then we'll go on. So. Fact is, we hurt more than we know, and so we need love and compassion from ourselves for ourselves, and not in some hokey way, but in the way of "I'll spend time with you, I'll I'll pay attention to you, I will, I will hold you and love you." And when we spoke before, you talked about that word "should." The, it's Marshall Rosenberg who said that "should" is the most violent word in the English language. And the why of that, as I understand it, is let's say I'm sitting in meditation and I should be different. I should be having a different, I, should, I shouldn't be having these angry thoughts or this, this self-hating thoughts. The reality of the moment is there are these thoughts, there are these emotions. They exist. And if I say they shouldn't exist, I'm at war with reality. I'm fundamentally at war with myself. And so uh, the antidote to that, of course, is to be a, to notice the shoulding, and that's already a huge step. But then I aspire to love and accept myself exactly as I am in this moment, which is with, with a certain level of psycho-spiritual development, with a certain, there's still some bad habits of mind and heart, and that's normal. So we move again and again into accepting what is. And perhaps lastly, there's a beautiful teaching from a great master in Thailand of the last generation, Achan Cha. And he said, 
Whenever you want to bring your practice into perfect balance, remember this. It's like this. The long form is, this moment is like this. So we're not trying to become somebody we're not or something we're not. It's, it's like this. And sometimes this is extraordinary beauty and love and ecstasy and, and joy. And sometimes it's brokenhearted loss and sickness and dying. So how's that for an ending? Oh. <laughs> Well, the payoff at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's dessert. I'll tell you, whoever, whoever made it here with our, with our, I mean, Robert, you guys, you've got some real endurance. It's, um, <laughs> that was absolutely beautiful. Robert, what a treat, what a delight. And what I'll tell you, what a highlight personally for my entire career in huh. broadcasting, podcasting, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this. Well, you're a lovely man to hang out with. <laughs> really. <laughs> Thank you. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Stimulus and pretty much any podcatcher out there. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.